Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. And so he's like, I wish I had no bones. And so then the, then the genie took away his bones because he wished for it. And then he was just this pile of, you know, meat sack that had no bones. Oh, that's so gross. Welcome to Lost Cast, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, episode 127. That's right. I'm Matt. I'm Jeff. Do we even know what we're talking about today? Things. Oh, Unity 5.1 came what? out. I think. Really? Or they, uh, they announced it on the blog this morning. Oh, I see. And new features are coming and stuff like that. Yeah, although it's mostly like VR stuff and yeah, uh, some other stuff. I perused the the notes this morning. Um, there's a lot of animation tweaks, a lot of fixes and changes for the animation editor, which is kind of cool because I use that a lot. So you used the word peruse just now. Have I talked about this before? The fact that you don't know what anything <laughs> means. So, can you define peruse? Because you used it in a way that suggests something. How do you? Oh, we have talked about this. I think it's yeah. I use it in the sense that like to skim over. Everybody does. It's one of those yeah. words. Uh, you know, ironic is misused a lot. And peruse. The definition is to uh, examine carefully or at length, typically in a thorough or careful way. Well then, I I did not peruse it. Yeah, and I think people use it, uh, oh, you know, I perused it, right? And, and what they mean is um, like a, a light skim or a browse, you know? Yes. And maybe when they say that, they're being, you know, ironic or sarcastic or something. You're ironic <laughs> or sarcastic. Uh, I like the language part of, uh, of the podcast, language. as I think a lot of people know. <laughs> I think that part's fun. Well, we came across a regular expression that you did not know. Ah, again, once again. Which one was it? Feeling your oats. Feeling your oats. Okay, see, I, I asked my wife about this, and she didn't know it either, so I, I think that you just made it up. <laughs> yes, I, I do that. I make up random words just to make you feel like you don't know anything. I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, I wouldn't. Sure. Actually, actually, Andrea suggested that. She was like, you know, sometimes I think that he just makes up stuff to mess with you. Well, That's what he does. I don't, actually. I mean, I would. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past me. <laughs> see, the person that messes with you would tell you that they're not messing with you. That person's a trickster. Right. So... I mean, I have it in my personality to mess with you. You do. You definitely but in do. this particular context, I'm not. I just grew up in a household where my parents and my grandparents, they're like full of these random sayings. I, I don't know why. It's just like a thing in my family. Well, I want to know if other people know about that. So uh, let us know on the comments of the forum because feeling your oats? Yes. No, no. That's You made that up. Come on. It's when <laughs> uh, horses, when they eat oats, they're supposedly more energetic Okay, that and so sense. when you have a horse that's eaten oats as opposed to hay, I guess it's more energetic and lively. And so, if you're feeling your oats, you're energetic and lively. See, this just makes me think you're messing with me even more because you're the horse, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're See, the one all, who's always horsey. It all dovetails and harmonizes together. You were super horsey on this live stream yesterday. I'm still super horsey, man. I uh, I got sick like last week. Yeah, and the actual sickness lasted for like. Two days, you know, it was, it was right. really mild. I mean, it was intense, but it was short-lived. Yeah. But I had like this lingering cough and mucus in my lungs that just won't go away. Sounds like a uh, wizard's lizard sales. Linger, wow. Right? <laughs> the initial burst and then just this long period of like, ugh, <laughs> You make it sound so uh, attractive. and Yeah, go buy our game. Part- participate in this elongated disease. <laughs> wow. You are uh, you are more self-deprecating than usual this morning. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. I think uh, it's a combination of things. One of them being Steam refunds. It hurts, Jeff. Does it? it? Hurts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it hurts my being. We should uh, actually talk about that because there's been a lot of... We talked about it last week a little bit. And yeah. uh, I don't think our overall opinion has changed. No. Um, but there's been a lot of uh, back and forth about, about this stuff. Yeah. A couple of developers came out... Um, with these really damning graphs, right? You know, they basically have these graphs that show, you know, oh, you know, we're selling, we're selling, we're selling, we're selling, and then the day, basically, the Steam refunds come out, their sales just go, yeah, right, and then they like basically flatline. And uh, but then, you know, there's other people who have 
the complete opposite. You know, they're like, well, nothing has changed for us whatsoever. Right. Um, and for us, we have actually seen a number of refunds. Um, like we were kind of alluding to just a couple moments ago, you know, our kind of day-to-day sales of Wizard Lizard aren't super strong. Right. We do okay in sales and stuff, but like uh, as our general baseline, it doesn't sell all that much. So it's, you know, a little hard for us to tell exactly how much the refunds affect us. One, because uh, the volume is sort of low and two, because, you know, it's been less than a week or, yeah, or a week, I guess. You mean the, the promotions do well for us? Yes. What like, the, it's what, so confusing. What did I say? <laughs> well, you said sales and like you said, like sales haven't been great for us, but the sales have been good. Oh, the, yes. The, the, uh, the wording English. What a, <laughs> what a confusing language. The purchases, the daily purchases for us is not so great. It's kind of the small trickle, but the, like the steam sales or like, you know, the humble bundle inclusion, like those promotion sales, um, those have been okay for us. Yes. That was yeah. what I meant. It's a good thing you're here to translate Jeff to <laughs> everyone else. Hey, I try. Yes. <laughs> it's part of my job description. <laughs> translate the horse. Artist, game developer, horse translator. <laughs> I'm going to add, yeah. Are you the horse whisperer? (laughs) Is that what it's called? I'm going to make new business cards right now and start printing (laughs) those. (laughs) Well, you can take them to E3. Oh, I can. That's next week. Oh, that's something else we should talk about. Man, we're kind of scatterbrained today. Yes. But uh, we're going to talk more about Unity 5.1. The Steam refunds, though, I want to talk a little bit more about that because, like, uh, you know, last week we just mentioned it kind of briefly and we were like, yeah, it sounds good. Thumbs up, you know, but it hadn't really existed long enough to see what it was going to be like. And right. we've had this initial kind of, you know, reaction from consumers and uh, it's it's been very conflicted. You know, some developers are like, it's great. I love it. Other developers hate it, you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on that we didn't necessarily talk about. Um, one thing I think that's really interesting to me, especially, and I think to us, is that um, you've probably heard us talk before about some of the reasons why we don't necessarily want to do a demo for our yeah, games. Yeah, the demo situation, right. <clears throat> and... You know, in some respects, it kind of feels like better for the consumer than this new world where it they is. can try uh, try the game before they, you know, really commit their money. And I think I was remarking to you yesterday that it's still better for us in the sense that when you have a demo, someone can download your demo and they can play it and they cannot like your game. And then without any effort on their part, they don't have to buy your game. It's easiest for them just to sit there and be like, that wasn't that great. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> But in this you know new world uh, where you can purchase a game and play it for two hours and then refund it, it's kind of like a demo, but it doesn't really require you know conversion on right. the part of your demo to convert the user from the demo to the full version. It's a better demo situation than we would have if we had a demo, you know, because the common flow could there could be, oh, I'm interested in this game. I download the demo and there's like, pretty much every step of the way you're going to lose people. You're not going to convert. Some people will download and never install. Some people will install and never play. Some people will play and then not like it. Some people will play for a long time and then buy it, you know, and by the time you get to the end of that conversion flow, you've lost, you know, there's dead bodies laying everywhere <laughs> right. where people are just not uh, following you all the way to the, basically the, the cash register. You know what I mean? And with this uh, steam refund situation, it's very much like a demo. People can go and buy it and there's basically no risk. Right. But the thing is, is like, you've already converted them. What's easy for them to do is to bail out. But like the path of re- least resistance is a very common human path, right? Just like, eh, <laughs> and that's the thing is they have to be active to get their money back. So if they just download or they just buy the game and they, you know, they don't play it in, is it two weeks? That's yeah. how long they have? Two and weeks hours. and two hours. Right. So if they don't play it for two weeks or if they play it for more than two hours or if they just don't do anything with it, like they just, they just forget about it. Like the money will get spent. You know what I mean? So it's like the path of least resistance. So it's technically a better flow for the business right. than the demo situation, but it's still... Uh, puts us in a demo situation which we wouldn't want to be in necessarily. It basically takes the apathetic and puts them on the side of the developer. Right, yeah. Right, people that would be like, I don't know if I like it that much, but I don't know if I want to refund it yet because I kind of like it. Yeah. Whereas in a traditional demo situation, that person would be like, I don't know if I want to buy it. I kind of do, I kind of don't. I'm going to wait. Yeah. And waiting usually means not. Right. 
What I saw so far, numbers-wise, is uh, the Octodad developers reported 60% refunds. See, I'm really <laughs> interested to to figure out where these numbers come from. Because yeah. when you say something like 60%, like what does that mean? 60% yeah. of all your sales in the last week since the, the, the refunds launched? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing. Per day? Like, was it just the last, like, three days worth of sampling? Like, what was right. it? Because then, like, you have people like the Defender's Quest guy who comes out and he says, my refund rate is, like, 0.058%. Right. And it's like, okay, well, that clearly sounds like total refunds versus total sales. Yes. Right? So, like, people are kind of comparing apples to oranges in this refund percentage. That's true. Yeah, they're just kind of throwing numbers around. That's right. fair. Anyway, so, I mean... It, although you know it is alarming if, if you have more than half of the people in any given time period returning your game that's probably a bad sign that's got to be really bad yeah I, I, some people pointed this out and we were talking about this is the fact that it's a brand new feature it's going to be more heavily used immediately you know and even just the initial news burst like we've talked before about how great of, of, uh, of traffic steam controls right so if steam is like has on their home page or they just bubble it up in the steam client hey refunds are now available Whatever it is in the world, they could put up there anything. You know, they, it could be like, you know, war propaganda. It, it could be like cooking recipe. Anything they put up there is going to get tons of traffic, right? Right. So the fact that they put refunds up there and they bubbled it up to, however, however they bubbled it up to their users, it's going to get more usage now, like right out the gate, than it will hopefully down the road, right? They basically used their most invasive alert, which is the pop-up when you first start Steam right yeah. you, ever, you ever start steam and there's that pop-up and it has like several pages where it'll say like you know daily deals and like midweek madness or whatever like that's like their most prominent advertising and that's where they put the refunds announcement okay so they gave it their all pretty much more or less yeah they like yeah. right when you start steam there's this huge pop-up that says refunds click here for more <laughs> information and you're like sweet you know i mean users especially the uh, the hardcore steam users they're probably going to want to use that feature just so they understand understand steam better you know yeah that's um, something that uh, i haven't done yet is i've actually been meaning to go and initiate my own refund just i that's part of the problem i don't even know who who should suffer <laughs> the wrath of my refund <laughs> but i want to go and buy a game and then refund it just to kind of see what the whole flow is like because i feel like i'm kind of flying blind i've been following the news but i want to see what the users are experiencing you know right i gotta do that today today and it's interesting you know on like the gamer side of the equation you know people are very very much saying like uh it's kind of a scenario where previously they felt like they had no recourse um they purchased a game kind of on video and you know reviews alone sometimes and you know a lot of people i think felt like they got burnt yeah um, because the game wasn't very good or it was ran badly on their system you know a lot of people could have mediocre pcs and you know um that's one of the challenges of being a developer of games is that you have this wide array of hardware in which people run games and so yeah <clears throat> even if many people love your game and your gun game runs great and it's really fun there are going to be people with crappy laptops that just it won't perform well yeah and that it kind of sucks for us honestly because our game has that problem where it's not very performant uh, on a lot of players' computers. And, you know, previously, for better or for worse, we got to keep their money and create an unhappy person. Like, you know, ethically, we don't really like that environment, you know? And it's not it's not good for anybody. It's bad for the user. They write a negative review. They're unhappy that they spent their money and they, like, resent us, you know? Right. And the new environment, you know, it's bad for our business, like our bottom line, but that's never been our... Like, we've never wanted to optimize for that. You know, the business has always been something that we want to have tight control over and, and master as best we can, but it's really just a means to an end. Like we just need that to enable our creativity and reaching, you know, gamers and that kind of thing. And there's some kind of intangible benefits too. I mean, you know, we kind of talked about, well, hopefully if someone can refund it, they won't leave a nasty review because they felt like they got burnt. I mean, yeah. they certainly, I think right now they could. Oh, sure. You know, they could refund the money and they could leave you in bad review. And you know, that's like the worst of both worlds, but you know, if it does prevent, you know, some handful of people uh, from writing bad reviews, that is an intangible benefit to the developer because um, I think that a lot of people, I know I do, I look at the reviews for Steam games very carefully before I buy Oh, yeah. Big time. 
So I, I treat it just like I would Yelp or anything else where yeah. I, I will I will kind of skim the reviews, right? And I will look for repeating patterns. Like if one person, you know, you see this in Yelp all the time. One person's like, oh, I went to the restaurant and the, you know, the waiter wasn't very good. One star or whatever. The waiter you know kicked what? me in the balls. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that would definitely get a one star review. Yes. Even I would take the time. Okay. <laughs> Listen <laughs> this, up, internet. <laughs> this cannot stand. <laughs> Well, as I expected. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's the repeating patterns because there's always going to be these off by ones, you know, where like uh, I, the game just wouldn't run on my 30 year old computer or something like that. But if you see a repeating pattern like, uh, you know, the game crashes, the game crashes, the game crashes, and you're like, oh, it's probably a very crashy game. I might just avoid that one, right? Right. Uh, there was an article I saw on uh, Kama Sutra, the bright side of Steam refunds. And I'll put a link to uh, all this stuff that I can find in our in our show notes on the website. So there's been a lot of opinions back and forth uh, about the Steam refunds, and there's a lot of articles, and we'll link to a couple of them uh, in the show notes so you can learn more about it. But uh, it is a surprisingly divisive issue. And I yes. think the bottom line is that most developers, you know, are going to see some drop-off uh, because of refunds. Because basically, you know, people now have the ability to refund a game easily and frictionlessly than they did before. And so you're going to see more people executing refunds than than before and so that's just a fact i think in general what'll happen is it'll kind of uh it'll kind of die down a little bit you know it'll be more of a feature that steam has but it's not necessarily blasted on the home page you know like steam is also in the business of making money and they're not going to have like get your refund now like they're not going to heavily promote that stuff it's going to be more like a feature that yeah it's available if you need it you know right. but it's not going to be front and center and uh and overall it's good because like most developers should not want the money of people who don't want to give it to them right it just it's it's not it's not good it's no. not ethical it's it's not like uh it's not sustainable right right yeah it's just yeah bad will and anti-consumer yeah <laughs> et cetera. Et cetera. um we got a pretty funny email the uh the day after the day of the refunds <laughs> were were launched um an email from someone who bought a wizard lizard a year ago and wanted a refund <laughs> yeah we're like, uh, that's a long time. Well, I mean, I basically point him towards Steam because, you know, essentially as developers, and I don't know if this is something that people know about Steam, but we have absolutely zero control over the refund policy. Oh, nothing. Yeah. Zero. We cannot issue refunds. We cannot manually do anything <laughs> with regards to refunds. The only thing we can do when someone says, hey, I want a refund for your, for your game is say, go talk to Valve. Yeah. There's been one case... And uh, I don't like doing this, but there's been one case where a guy was pretty unhappy and he was someone that I talked to on a couple of occasions about the game and he was just not really happy with the game. Um, and he, and he, but he was very uh, civil and constructive about it. Mm, that's and good. so what I did was I bought him a similar game on Steam. Wow. So he was like, you know, I, I really don't like this game and like, you know, I can't get a refund through Valve. So, you know, I, I'd really like, you know, to rectify the situation. I was like, you know, okay, well, how about I buy you? I think it was like Abyss Odyssey, which is another roguelike that was like about 10 bucks. Well, that is above and beyond, sir. Yes. But I mean, I that's, uh, that, that kind of goes to show that like, I would rather have a positive interaction with someone. Yeah. And I'm sure that we lost money on, <laughs> on that transaction, right? Because if he gave us 10 bucks, Valve took some percentage of that. Yeah. Insert industry standard revenue sharing percentage <laughs> yep and uh then i paid 10 bucks from our account for a game for him which then steam took their industry standard percentage of yeah so basically the player lost because he didn't enjoy his experience with our game and had to spend a lot of time doing backs and forths with you you lost because you had to pay more than you made and you had to spend time on support and Valve won. <laughs> Valve won. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Big time. The winner in this scenario is Valve. But and it's good to see them do the refunds thing because actually they do not really benefit much. I mean, they probably benefit in the sense that they have less unhappy, fewer unhappy players. Yeah. And they have uh, less time spent on dealing with unhappy players. Yeah. So they had to pay people to do that, which is good. Um, but essentially they're losing out on you know, X percentage of the revenue that they would have gotten from 
from those sales. That's interesting about that one uh, outlier where you bought a game for someone um, because that person had refund avenues. We saw on these uh, these charts we have access to now that refunds, there's a very small amount of them, but they exist in the past. Right. You know, like it is a system that Valve has had the ability to do, although deeply buried underneath this big wall of reaching, you know, their customer support, Right. But I'm wondering why this person was unable to initiate that when others clearly were able to. Um, I don't know. But I mean, if you look at the numbers, it was very, very few people that were able to get refunds prior to this new change. And so my guess is that it was just a very opaque process. Um, Perhaps Valve was overwhelmed with requests to their support and they couldn't even respond to everybody. Yeah. Or Mm. their kind of default party line was, no, you can't have a refund unless, you know, something yeah, extenuating. Maybe they had policy in place where it was like, you know, if the game won't run or if it's too slow, which that's a common problem for our players. And this player may have been like, that runs fine. I just don't like it. I think you know? that was the case. Yeah. His PC was perfectly fine. Like he wasn't having performance or crashes. I think he was just like, I just don't like the game. <sighs> Those hurt the most, don't they? They do. <laughs> <laughs> Those hurt more than the people who just kind of come in and just like, oh, it's Isaac clone or like, you know, oh, it looks bad or just something like that where it's more like, it ran fine. I played it and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> those those uh, cut deepest <laughs> yeah well like i said uh, this particular person wasn't uh wasn't rude about it or anything he didn't he didn't hate us he just hated the game yeah and that again almost makes it like a civil person you Don't, know because like when they're hateful and, and insulting you can it's easier to dismiss them you're like oh whatever you're probably five years old you just learned how to curse or something you know right. but the, the more civil people <laughs> i want you to understand intellectually sir that i hate your work I think you're a waste of time. I wrote my uh, (laughs) PhD thesis on why your game is terrible. (laughs) Wow, actually, I think I'd be pretty flattered by that. That's quite an investment. (laughs) Those can can take a lot of effort. Here's 40 (laughs) pages on why you're an awful game designer. (laughs) You know, there was a a video I saw recently. It was like, I'm going to get this wrong. Five reasons to play a bad game. And uh, th- it was surprisingly compelling. And uh, uh, some of it spoke true to my own experience, you know? Like, um, for example, they can make for better party games, mm. you know? Like, if it's a multiplayer game or even just a ridiculously bad single-player game that's fun to watch. Ridiculously um, bad. <laughs> my, my wife and I have uh, this these series of games that we play called Dream Gear, which uh, they're these kind of... Like, even if you're not familiar with Dream Gear, you're I'm sure you're familiar with these kind of plug-and-play or the 50-in-one or, ooh, the 101, or the most I've seen was 76,001. Whoa. <laughs> but th- those are stupid. They're just like, you know, it's like, here's 30,000 different versions of Joust. You know what I mean? Right. But the Dream Gear was great. Like, the 50 and 1, that's the sweet spot we've learned after buying many of these things. And uh, some of them are really bad, but, like, hilariously so. And, like, when I visited Illinois uh, a while ago... Uh, we, we as a family like gathered around and played these horrible games and had a, like a really good time just making fun of how horrible they were, you know? Right. And, uh, what I was thinking was like, you know, sometimes you'll be playing this game. Let's say you have some friends over and you got a group of like, you know, four to eight people or something and you're playing a game. Uh, sometimes there can be this one person that's super competitive, right? that kind of sucks the fun out of it, like wants to organize it too much or is just like, yeah, that was hilarious when you jumped off the side and exploded, but we're losing points. So no more of that, (laughs) you know? And they're like, they take the fun away a little bit. And with a bad game (laughs) or a bad experience, uh, you know, it it kind of like flattens that out where you're like, yeah, who cares? Like it's, it's impossible to control this piece of garbage, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It allows Uh, you to let go and actually have fun. Yeah, that was my favorite point, but the other five points were like, or however many points, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, hopefully that's not the reason people play a Wizard's Lizard. <laughs> like, oh, I love streaming this game because my audience thinks it's hilarious to watch this terrible game. Oh, that would, that would suck, wouldn't it? Okay, no more self-deprecation. We're done. This is not Deprecast. Okay, I had a thought actually um, about what we could do to kind of uh, fix that situation is we, we can only deprecate when we couple it with positivity. It has to be a compliment sandwich. <laughs> Do we talk about that in the podcast? I don't know if we did or not, but this I is something actually I, uh, I heard from one of my good friends, JD. He actually yep. introduced me to this concept. Yeah, we used to work together at Raptor. Yep. Good stuff. He still works there, actually. He's kind of the lead front-end guy. 
after we left. So he took our germs. He, t- he took our he took germs. Our germs. <laughs> That's right. So if you're listening, JD, thanks a lot for ruining America <laughs> or whatever. Right. Anyways, uh, he always used to say. I think his parents are like um, psychologists, psychiatrists. Oh, that sounds that sounds rough. Yeah, I remember him mentioning a few things about his childhood, about being analyzed by his parents. But um, huh. uh, whenever you have something negative to say, you should always wrap it in a compliment sandwich. Yeah. So you tell something, somebody you tell somebody something nice, then you tell them the negative news, and then you tell them something nice again. Oh, I see. <laughs> so you wrap the negativity in positive. That reminds me of, um, I went, when I was uh, home in Illinois again, we played some Magic the Gathering, which I meant to talk about in the podcast, because I've got thoughts about that game. I've had, like, a, you know, an affair with that game for, like, 10 or 20 years now. Uh, But anyway, we uh, we were playing, I know, we were playing in a group, it was, like, uh, up to four players at one time is the most we had, I think, and uh, we decided, because basically, when you want to attack and you're playing a standard game of Magic with two players, you just attack. You don't usually pick a target, unless you get stupid planeswalkers involved or something. Um, with this scenario, you had to pick a person. So you'd be like, who of my three friends do I hate the most? Right. So we decided that you have to, uh, you have to compliment someone before you attack them. Right. (laughs) So we thought that was funny. And then like just far enough into the game where I'd forgotten about that rule. Uh, one of my buddies was like, cause you know, I'd been in town, I hadn't been in town for like seven years or something. And he was like, Matt, it's really great to see you. I was like, I was touched for a moment. I was like, oh, that's so nice. And he goes, two goblins coming your way. (laughs) (laughs) Totally got me. What a jerk. I know. He stuck a knife in and twisted it. That's right. Betrayed your friendship. But that's what we should do. Um, We should kind of like... Because we're here's what's going to happen. Just the way that we talk, you know, it's a very conversational podcast. We're just going to be talking about stuff, and we self-deprecate, and uh, we should catch ourselves and then say something positive as well, or something nice, right? Something good about something that we've done around that time, or like you know, if we're picking on a particular feature, we can point out something good about it. Yes. So we'll I we'll agree. try to do that. Yep. Positivity, everybody. That's right. <laughs> So, tell me about uh, the Unity 5.1 release. Is this one the one that's going to have some of these 2D features we've been uh, gunning for? Nope. Ah, oh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> What's it going to have? Anything good? Nope. Oh, okay. No, it has a lot of good stuff. A lot of lighting oh. changes, a lot of VR changes. It's actually a pretty massive uh, change list. I haven't been able to peruse it. Mm-hmm. Mm, see what, callback, you, yeah. You see what I did there? Yeah, you're learning. I am. Someday uh, you'll be good at talking. Oh. <laughs> well... We'll be happy when that day comes. Yes. Um, anyways, uh, I haven't really had a chance to digest all the changes, but it looks like, uh, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of fixes and changes for the animation pane, which is um, pretty cool because that's kind of a complicated thing to work with. Um, it's very UI heavy, creating animations. Um, yeah. Because it's not like, you know, we're used to creating animations solely in code. We're used yes. to doing everything in code, honestly. And so having this UI that does a lot of stuff for you that you would have... You know, typically for animations, we would have been creating these JavaScript object literals that are like, here's frame one at position 30x, 40y, and the size is 41 pixels by 56 pixels. Yeah. It's a very mechanical way to work. It's sometimes surprising we were able to get something that feels as kind of dynamic as it does, given the mechanical uh, input methods, you know? Yeah. Man, uh, one thing that I really love, though, about the Unity... Uh, animation system is that uh, I recently added like a kind of melee attack to uh, the character in the Unity prototype. <laughs> right. And uh, what I can do is I have a hitbox, which is just like a, a collider. It's a circle collider in Unity. And in the animation, frame by frame, you can adjust where that circle collider is, how big it is, and, and all that stuff. And it's very easy just to kind of basically put the collider frame by frame where you want it to be for each animation frame and that is like stupid powerful compared to uh what we would had before you know like in in the wizard's lizard we have this scenario where everything is a rectangular bounding box and the bounding boxes don't rotate they're all axis aligned bounding boxes which are much easier to work with honestly but they are very limiting in the sense that for example a spear in a wizard's lizard has like this very long rectangular shape. You know, it's skinny and long. But the bounding box for that spear never changes. It doesn't rotate. It doesn't get thinner. 
and longer based on whether it's going up or sideways. Hmm. Uh, and so you just have, you know, it feels okay. We did we did a good job with making the collision feel pretty good, but it's not optimal. And the, Unity the spear, makes a lot of that stuff really easy. I thought the spear in a wizard lizard was just a small square, like the width of the very thin spear. It is, but I mean, it's not as long as the spear is. Right, yeah. Like the, the collision is non... It, it's okay because it moves so fast. I see. But, I mean, if it moved a little slower, I think that you would absolutely notice that the tip of the spear doesn't actually collide with anything. Right. It's like it doesn't actually collide until you get into the middle of the spear. You're saying it's clunky, but it kind of gets lost in the action, so it's okay. Yes. Fair enough. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's nice to be able to have much more fine grain control over the collision than we did before. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and that stuff too, you don't have to code it all by hand. You can just use Unity's wonderful tools. Exactly. Nice. Anyways, uh, so the 2D stuff you were talking about actually, so Unity a little while ago, they announced more native support for 2D stuff, which is pretty cool. Um, and I actually bought Unity Pro for a couple reasons. One was that I wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I want it. Give it to me. Uh, and then the second was that I wanted to be able to try out these new features because uh, right now we're using a third-party library called Sprite Tile, and Sprite Tile is basically a tiling system that was written by some guy, and he put it on the Unity store for like 30 bucks. It's pretty good. It does a lot of what we need. I like it. Um, you know, it's not the most optimal thing ever. You know, if I was designing it from scratch, I would probably do a few things differently, but that's really neither here nor there. <laughs> Unity ha has been developing their own 2D tools, and so I, I wanted to check those out. And so I downloaded the alpha version of Unity, which is only available to pro users. Um, and that has a long way to go. That stuff is cool. Like, you can create tile maps, but that's about it. Admit like, it. You just wanted to call yourself a pro user, didn't you? I did. That's why you bought it. And I wanted to get that sweet black skin. <laughs> oh, the skins are only available for the pro users? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Sleek leak yep so you can't get that cool black background which does nothing other than make you feel important <laughs> yeah it's you're enough pro. sometimes it's right <laughs> like a, it's like a steam achievement or something right but anyways uh yeah it has a long way to go the 2d stuff you know i'm hopeful that it'll end up being pretty cool but it is not something uh one that i think is going to land soon right and two is not going to hit all the use cases we need to hit right away yeah, they'll have to build out more features. So, like, it, even when they launch it, you might be like, ah, it's not enough. I got to continue with uh, Sprite Tile and some other solutions for a while. Right. I'm wondering if it will uh, be out by the time we finish this next game. Probably. Because we're going to be on this next game for a while. Is Probably. But, like, at a certain point, we're getting to the, to the point where, like, I don't want to rewrite. I mean, I've <laughs> spent a lot of time with Sprite Tile, and I have yeah. a lot of infrastructure that uses Sprite Tile. Uh, for dungeon generation and things like that and like i'm getting to the point where i just uh even if it came out unless it was like the most amazing thing ever <laughs> i would probably still use sprite tile cool uh, that's kind of comforting actually yeah like we're building on a good foundation <laughs> i did a live stream <laughs> yesterday how did your live stream go it went pretty well actually um i finished up the key and lock puzzle very hackily i might add but it, i got it working hackily like hackily that. Hackishly? Yes. Hackishly? Hackerific? Hackitly? You took a hatchet to it and you just, ah, chop this feature in. Yes. Well, as I mentioned on the stream, you know, make it work, make it pretty, make it fast. Yes, absolutely. So I was in definitely in step one. Um, but anyways, I now have dungeons that you can uh, run through. And at a certain point, there is a door that is blocked. You can't open or you can't mm. pass through. And then somewhere else in the dungeon, there's a switch you have to flip. And when you flip the switch, the door goes down and you can proceed. Ooh. So that is uh, one of my goals was to play around with some kind of more, you know, less combat oriented obstacles and more kind of higher level puzzle mechanics. You know, we talked about in a previous episode probably that uh, we had these very light puzzles in a wizard's lizard that felt kind of okay, but they were very isolated into the room in which they existed, you know? Yeah. We didn't have any kind of like high level, okay, you go over here, you flip this switch, this door opens, then behind this door, there's another switch, you hit that switch and another door opens, then you go there and there's the boss or whatever. Right. 
Yeah, that was one of our biggest mistakes in a Wizard Lizard is making everything about the combat. Basically, like very specifically, the decision to have most monsters being alive be the condition to keep doors closed. Uh, but on the plus side, <laughs> being positive here, the combat was pretty fun, so that was okay. Yeah. Hey. Hey. But I think <laughs> that, uh, you know, going forward with the next game, we really want the next game to be, you know, we want combat to be an important part of it, but we don't want combat to be the reason that you're there. Yeah, and we talked about this uh, pretty recently, is like the the base thing in the game is is not combat. And it's true for a Wizard Lizard, too. It's it's not combat. It's movement. It's exploration. It's It's traversing, right? Like the combat is kind of secondary to that. And we want to embrace that because there's really no getting around it you know if you take the monsters out it's still a game it's still a game you can complete and enjoy and explore and wander around you know and there's lots of games like that where there is no combat and it's still a lot of fun for a lot of people you know like fez or mist you know where it's like it's all about exploring and figuring it out Um, but we really like the combat but it's important to think of it as something that uh tempers what's already there not the thing that exists like the reason the world exists is to support this combat it's not as much that yeah it's more like an obstacle in your way right right it's just yeah. a different kind of puzzle and the puzzle is can you navigate around this bouncing thing before it reduces your health to zero yeah and just kind of having that mentality when we're designing the combat helps out because we can look at combat from every different angle we can be like sometimes combat is required sometimes combat is optional sometimes you want to do combat sometimes you want to avoid combat you know and not having everything built on top of combat you know that kind of make puts you in a scenario where it's like combat is your only real option but keeping it as a secondary thing it's more like you can approach combat from any angle right yeah it's more flexible yeah and harmonizes better so you also did something with Unity Lights recently, and uh, you said that uh, they were kind of bad. I forget exactly how, but there was an easy fix for it. Yes. Well, it's an easy fix, but I, it's one of those fixes where I don't feel great about it because I don't really understand the complete implications of the fix. And uh, especially in a system like Unity, when you go around flipping switches and uh, you know you don't always know whether or not that's going to have a performance implication. Right, yeah. Um, So in specific, there was these lights that we have in the game. And the lights in Unity are really simple to use, and they're great. They add a lot of kind of cool effects to the game. And I noticed that when I had added the flickering for the lights, and I had started to increase the size of the dungeons, that the lights got worse. Mm. And like you could really tell that there was a tile-based system at work because the way that the lights were lighting the tiles was very tile based so you'd get these light um i guess circles right the area in which the light was affecting the world you could really see which tiles it was affecting and not yeah that makes sense so like one you know you get this very jagged tiled looking effect from the light because you know it will be affecting this whole tile and then not this tile next to it Right. right, And so you, you could really see the squareness of the map. <clears throat> so is that something that Unity 5.1 is addressing? Well, I or think... Or you fix it yourself? It's not really a bug in Unity. It's, it's, I think it's something that you have to understand the way Unity works and tweak the settings such that you can get the effect that you want. I think the underlying issue is that when there are too many lights in a scene... Unity will degrade the quality of some of those lights. Oh, interesting. And there's a way to override that. You can say this light is very important. It's mm. kind of like a CSS declaration where you say this light is important and I want you to always <laughs> render this light at the maximum quality. The other way to do it, which I actually couldn't find the setting, is by increasing the number of lights that can be in a scene before it starts to degrade their quality. I see. That's a setting somewhere. It's a setting somewhere, yeah. Okay. And again, this is not something that I'm a complete expert on, obviously, but what put I did... Put your tiger head on. Yeah, put your tiger head on, everybody. Uh, but I did, I went and I made our core lights important, and now they look great. But, <laughs> you know... I'm guilty of that, man. I used to go in there in my CSS, and if I couldn't... <laughs> uh, I, I figured out much later, like, I had been a professional web developer for like five years before I'd ever heard the term specificity. 
Oh my god! I know. Like, how did that never get bubbled up? How is that never a thing? So I was like, I don't know. Important Speci- specificity. Specificity. That's a tough word. It's a stupid word. Specificity. And the first time it came up, I was like, What? What are you talking about? <laughs> they're like, You should go research that. <laughs> Maybe you should understand your craft, Matt. Maybe you should know how to do your job, person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just quickly, specificity in CSS is uh, the idea that. CSS selectors with more specificity will have a higher, uh, will basically override ones with less specificity. Yeah, it's like the more you drill in, if you're like, you know, body div ul li a span b i span span div span, (laughs) you know, you go, you drill way deep into there, it's gonna have a high word I can't say specificity score. Yeah, there's also it depends on the kind of selectors you use so like an element selector like if you just say a yeah all a's that's not as specific as an a with this class or, yeah, or like an id is very specific right? yeah an id is the most specific you can get right? right because an id refers to a single instance of an element on the page hopefully hopefully unless <laughs> I've, you're... I've had to work with code before where i'm like why isn't this working i'm grabbing it by id i know i have the l <laughs> Wait well, a minute. There's six there's, things. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. <laughs> Web dev. Yeah. Yeah. I ran into that problem all the time with your code at Raptor. Hey. Oh. Wait, weren't you the one generating generating the output? Yes. Ah. <laughs> I win. No, you don't. Dang it. Because whose code still exists at Raptor? Oh, yeah, that's true. All mine was ripped out. ha. <laughs> Purged. Although, I uh, I kind of think that a lot of that had to do with it being YUI based. Yeah, I, I wanted to use YUI three because I was um, man, what this I, I should not have been allowed to make decisions, but I felt like at the <laughs> at that point in time I was <laughs> like, hey, I'm a front end senior front engineer. I should get to make these decisions if I want, you know. But like <clears throat> uh, YUI three is fine; it's solid and everything. And I I learned a lot using it. I had a good time, but like that's not a good reason to. <laughs> pick a technology for your software necessarily is like just because the engineers kind of want to yeah yeah we should have gone with jquery honestly yep hey you live and you learn that's right and now it's still cool that i got to do that as we've seen i think yui is actually just kind of shutting down yeah so i mean yui as the the library all that's left is uh the experience we got from using it the rest is gone forever great you know, can you believe this year is already half over? Today no. is June 9th. Stop it. <laughs> and I remember late last year thinking like, oh, I really want us to launch a new game in the first three months. <laughs> I remember that too. And now it's been the second three months. And like, it still feels like we're closer. We've been making great progress, you know, but I, I still just like the light at the end of the tunnel is so, is so tiny, so faint. Yes. Well, I think, you know, early in the year, we kind of pivoted a little bit. And this happens to a lot of companies, right? Where you think that you have these plans and then, you know, it kind of came down to it. And we're like, you know, we're just not happy with our JavaScript stack. Like, obviously, we talked about some podcast before, but I won't go into all the reasons why. But we made that decision to pivot towards Unity for a number of reasons. And, you know, that obviously the the one of the big side effects of that is that we slowed down. Right. And then some of our initial plans for the beginning of this year, you know, kind of got pushed back. I saw this talk. It was probably on the GDC vault or something, but it was basically like um, talking about <clears throat> ants moving down a path, right? Okay, so imagine these ants are moving down a path and you've got this kind of a tree branches, like various ways you can go, you know? And the easiest way to go is just straight. You just keep going down this tree branch. And there might be ways you can go left and right or you can go backwards, right but ants are just going to go forward and that's like the default that's our default everybody's default you just kind of you want to go forward right but you need to take a step back and you zoom out right and you might see that this tree branch the current branch that you're on just ends up ahead or like it goes down like it, it withers or something it's not the right path right and sometimes you have to go back you head closer to the trunk of the tree and then you you know you have to go way back to find a better branch and that's basically what we've been doing for for months now and it just feels like feels like a long time at this point. Yeah, it does. Sometimes you have to, uh, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better, right? Is that's, a, that's a regular expression, isn't it? Uh, I know some of them. I guess. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty straight, <laughs> it's not really an expression because it's like, 
It's literal. I love that answer. I guess. I guess. Jeez, Matt, you're you're bad at this. <laughs> well, an expression I think is is it needs to be like a metaphor when, or when the cows come home or something. Right. It yeah. needs to be like the the meaning. It doesn't necessarily need to be non-obvious, but it needs to be abstracted. I see. Like, because when you say it's going to get worse before it gets better, that's just a literal expression of what you're trying to say. But there's a term for that, right? What is that called? I don't know, Matt. Why do you ask me these difficult <laughs> questions? <laughs> I actually had a conversation, uh, a couple of different conversations on Reddit. Someone made a thread. Uh, I follow our game dev, and uh, they were talking about, like, am I... I forget what the exact question was, but it was, like, basically, am I going down the wrong path, like you're talking about, uh, by making HTML5 games? And, you know, I had a complicated um, answer, and uh, it was kind of fun because uh, a bunch of people had uh, questions about this or that, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes if that kind of thing interests you. It was um, oh, basically a quick summary is, like, I, I said that, you know, we have a game on Steam that made in HTML5, and we're not using it anymore. You like So just kind of let that speak for itself, but at the same time, HTML5 is great for a lot of things, like web, um, ease of development. You know, it's much easier than a lot of different development stacks, and then uh, most of all to me, I think that especially for uh, newer game developers, it's probably the easiest way to make money. So there's a lot of good things about it. Yes. I don't know. The money thing is hard. I think that making money is difficult no matter which way you slice it. I mean, I mean, you, when I say the easiest way, I don't mean it's easy. What I mean is of all the various difficult ways to make money, it right. is among the easiest. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. I just, you know, I, I don't want anyone to think it is easy because dealing with uh, licensing and, and the models of money making uh, with kind of web games uh, is a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these we talked about on, uh, was it Monetizago? Is that one of our podcasts where you talked all about monetization? And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Money. Money, money, money. It's very important, you know, especially uh, like we've talked about before. If you want to do it full time, you got to think about the money. Unless, hey, maybe you're rich or you got money from something. Like, that's great. Good for you. But <laughs> a lot of us don't live in that world and we got to think about paying the bills. Unfortunately. I beat Hotline Miami 2 recently. Oh, you beat it. I beat it. Yeah. I, did I know that was even out? I guess I did. <laughs> I beat it before you knew it was out. <laughs> yes. That's quite a feat. I know. Yeah, right? really good. I enjoyed it probably a little bit less than the original game. So that's probably unfortunate because, you know, you always want to, you probably always want to increase, you know? Why? Why did you enjoy it less? So the thing is, it's a, it's very much the same game, which is good because the first game was good, right? Similar graphics, similar gameplay and everything. And uh, I do have to say, I really appreciate that they tried new things, not just like kind of across the board, you know, like different kind of characters you can play, some new weapons, uh, obviously brand new level design everywhere, but also some like different ways of designing the levels, kind of an open, a more open world feel where you kind of have like, here's a giant room that's kind of twisty. And there's different paths, and uh, you you can go multiple way multiple ways, and there's no danger in this room, and that's kind of unheard of in the original game. It didn't really exist, you know. Um, where the game really lost me was this story that just felt completely scattered and unrelated. And granted, it could just be that I didn't get it. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. But to me, it was like here's here's ten different stories. Here's a story about a serial killer. Here's a story about different gangsters here's some stories about the military and costa rica or something what in the world and they don't seem to be related at all and it almost seemed intentional that it was just this really scattered story uh that really lost me and then also i think i talked about this in the podcast before some of the weapons were kind of like especially the one that we saw in the trailer where like you uh, you you have dual you're dual wielding basically you've got two guns uh, one in each hand and there's this mechanic where you can kind of hold down a button and you go from firing both together, like you're, you know, you're facing, like both your arms are facing forward and you rotate your arms out to now both your arms are facing left and right. That looked so cool in the trailer and you're like, awesome, that's just like a movie, you know? Uh, in general practice, completely useless. It's so much more effective just to shoot people and like, you, especially at that speed in an action game like that, trying to figure out how to get this mechanic to work. And it could just be I'm too clumsy or something, but that really lost me. No, I, I completely understand. I think that that's similar to mistakes we made in uh, in a Wizard's Lizard, right? Like, the most effective thing you can do is to shoot something straight. Yeah. Because it's easier to aim, you know, uh, and all that other stuff. And, like, for those kinds of abilities to really be effective, like, you have to be... 
the space has to be very uh like it has to be in a certain place you know like right. you have to have enemies at the particular sides and like why won't you just turn to shoot them a good comparison to a wizard's lizard would be like the uh the hunt totem i think we call it the spear totem where it aims at you which is interesting it's like that's a cool mechanic but the fact of the matter is like that's pretty useless because it, you have to put yourself in in danger and it's only one projectile at a time, kind of like pew, pew. But you yourself have the usually like a machine gun equivalent in your hands. So you're like, I'm not going to waste my time with this totem. Right. Um, on the plus side, it's content. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. So overall, what I felt was like Hotline Miami to me is kind of an indie gem. Maybe an indie classic. I think it's it's like it's it's got a unique look. It's got really unique gameplay. It feels original and innovative, you know. And it uh, it's got this visceral feel. It really just pulls you in. Uh, the music and the atmosphere. I think they really nailed the first game. And the second game, they took exactly that same game and they just did a lot more with it. And the reason I think it was kind of it didn't impress me as much. I think is because almost every single step of the way, the things they did that were new weren't as good as just the core of the game mm. you know what i mean yeah that's a that's a big danger with a uh with a sequel yeah is you know trying to capitalize on what made the first game so good but add new things that don't detract from the goodness yeah and i mean that's gonna be a thing of like personal taste you know because like i didn't dig the Mega Man x games i love the Mega Man games and then when Mega Man x came out you can now like uh, I mean, sliding existed in Mega Man, but like stuff like uh, sliding on the walls, jumping off the walls, all these new complicated mechanics and just the uh, more depth to it and stuff. It, I felt like it was a bit too much. Yeah. And I think uh, Hotline Miami 2 had some of that same same stuff going on. But, you know, even despite all of the flaws, I had a really good time playing it. And these days, it's very rare for <laughs> me to even play a game, much less finish it. So I think that that speaks uh, really highly of, of my experience with the game. Nice. That's good. Yeah. What about you? What have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing basically two things. One is uh, Invisible Ink, Ooh. which, you know, I've talked to death about already, but I love it. It's great. I'm having a really hard time. So I beat it on like the easy mode, which was really easy, which was a lot of fun. I mean, I really dig the way they designed the campaigns in that game because when you play through on easy mode, the game is very forgiving. It wasn't difficult. I didn't fail a single mission along the way. And I was able to, you know, complete the entire game. And, it, and to, the campaign is short uh, because it's a roguelike. And so you're meant to play it over and over again. Yeah. And uh, But it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And I got to the end and I beat it and I felt great. And then I went back and I started playing it on the, you know, medium difficulty mode. And I've just been losing. Like, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I've been able to get halfway through the game um, wow. so far. Like, uh, And part of it's that, like, I kind of refuse to accept failure. And so, you know, a lot of times you can, like, exit a level if you don't complete the current objective um, and you won't get as much money or whatever you were supposed to be there to get, but you will get out and live another day. Mm -hmm. Or um, you might lose an agent and they'd be down and you can leave that level and you that agent will be completely gone from your team. But I won't tolerate that. And so when that happens, I just nuke that game. Oh, wow. You start over? I start over, yeah. Oh, I see. Like if, if if I have a devastating loss, like I lose an entire unit or I am unable to complete the primary objective of a mission, like I could uh, just leave the level. You know, I could get out with my hide intact, so to speak, and, and go on to the next level, but I would be in not a great position, like resource and, and team-wise. Yeah, progression is such an interesting thing in, uh, in game design. I, I remember I could not, for the life of me, I could not play Fire Emblem games and from all intents and purposes, they were made just for me. You know, I love turn-based tactics games and medieval fantasy. And, like, they're really well done. They're good games. But they have this thing where when one of your units dies, that unit is dead. And I'm like, no. Like, I couldn't handle it, you know? No yeah. matter what unit would die, I'd be like, oh. I, no, I had to have this perfect, like, I had to have everybody there. And it would affect the story, which I don't even follow the story that much. It was just like... um. I just couldn't handle it, you know, like OCD or something. I don't know. Couldn't do it. Yeah. I think that uh, the interesting thing about Invisible Ink is that with the, the medium difficulty levels, you really have to make smart decisions, uh, especially about how you allocate resources. And it's one of those things where like you, it's give and take. 
you know, you're not going to be able to get everything that you want. And so you have to, you know, be willing to let go of some stuff and say, you know, this one thing is more important or I feel like this is a path to success. So I'm going to let this other piece go Yeah, and not have this completely ideal scenario. You said you're playing two games? Yeah. So the one I've been playing a lot is Heroes of the Storm, Ooh. which is so good. Uh, it's kind of Blizzard's take on League of Legends. <laughs> and uh, actually just came out of beta. is now publicly released uh, June 2nd, I think. Oh, wow. Very um, recent. Really interesting, actually. Uh, I caught... There was a launch event where they were doing a live event uh, where people were playing each other, uh, like five-on-five five teams. And Cobalt Streak was actually on one of the teams. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I kind of got to watch him play against some other YouTubers uh, in Heroes of the Storm. And I thought that was pretty fun, you know, because Cobalt Streak uh, played our game... A wizard's lizard back when it was on green light and uh his audience very much helped us get over that hump to being green lit so yeah it's funny those those handful of uh of streamers and youtubers who have helped us in the past we're like forever latched on to them yes we're like oh you were good to us and we know the impact it's had and like <laughs> you can just ignore us for the for rest of eternity we'll still try <laughs> yes because we're so grateful but, you know, it's kind of nice, like, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, the relationship that streamers have with their audience where, you know, people feel like, you know, they want to root for like, hey, I know that guy, you know, I've heard of Cobalt Street, I've talked to him, he's played our game, and, uh, you know, so it was kind of fun to see him playing a game and I could be like, oh, man, I want him to win. It's so funny, the uh, the whole streamer and YouTube kind of uh, ecosystem, you know, because there's this it feels like a really thin line between someone desperate to play your game or desperate for attention or really eager to talk to developers versus someone who's like, they don't want you to waste their time. Like I, I can't even respond to you. I, I, I just, I, I'm inundated with emails all the time or I have so many subscribers, so many followers, you know, like it feels like a very thin line, but I think it's, I don't know. It's probably just the way it seems. Yeah. I'm sure it's this very gradual climb. I'm sure it's like anything else, you know, where it's like, hey, I've been streaming full time for three years, you know, and like that's that's how I got to this point. It wasn't this overnight thing. It wasn't like there was this thick line <laughs> from, oh man, I'm so happy to talk to any developer. I'm happy to get any free keys versus like, oh geez, people are just emailing me keys all the time. I just got to bat them away with a stick, you know? Yeah, it's probably like uh, you don't see it as much as a developer because. You know, when people are on that lower end of their audience building, they're reaching out to us heavily. Right. And once they get into the middle, they don't necessarily need to reach out quite as much because maybe they have a bigger audience and they're working on sustaining themselves. And they probably have a little bit of inbound interest from developers that know about them. But, you know, we might not know about them. But then we do know about the big streamers who are on that other end of the spectrum where they're like trying to beat us away with the bat. Like, get out of here, you blood-sucking developers yeah <laughs> i don't want to play your game or maybe i do who cares i, don't, I just don't want to talk to you <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think anyone's really like that but you know just for the sake of humor but uh but yeah i think it's easy to to miss that middle ground right it's kind of like indies you know it kind of seems like indies either fall into oh my god i'm starving and no one's buying my games and i'm a complete failure or yay i'm super successful I think that might have to do with there seems to be this kind of um, chasm of like silence, you know, things kind of calm down. It's kind of like we've been for the last six months where we're just, we're, we're heads down and we're building. We're not really trying to be that noisy necessarily, you know, because like when you first start off, you read about the general advice, which is like, oh, be, put yourself out there, be social, get a Twitter, get a Facebook, get a Tumblr and make as many friends as you can, go to all the conferences you can, you know. And so you try to be really noisy and you release a bunch of bad games and stuff. And then after a while, that might calm down and you realize like, okay, I need to, like, I know how now to do better work. I know how to learn how to do it better. I know how to actually execute it better. I just need to take the time to do it. And But the thing is, is like making a really good game can take years, like three, five years of just heads down, you're hitting it hard every day, right? And then in that middle there, you're not going to be giving talks. You're probably not going to be hitting the Twitter as hard and stuff like that. You're going to be really quiet. Near the end, when you release, you're going to be super noisy. And then after you've had a success of, you know, any kind of uh, measurable value, you're going to like, uh, people are going to see that and be like, whoa, 
you know you came out of nowhere so like it seems like there's this drift in the middle where you're kind of building and like in when you start off you're kind of noisy and then when you reach a certain level of success people will notice right yeah i think it's really easy to miss the middle like you're saying yeah or like when someone's climbing or when someone's trying to climb it's hard to tell they're doing that like they might look from the outside like you know if you're faking it until you make it someone might be like whoa that person's doing really great but really you're like no i'm not i'm just climbing or someone else might be like, you know, uh, I'm climbing and I'm making progress and I can tell I'm, I'm steadily improving. And someone else might look at it from the outside and be like, oh, you're just a newbie founder. Oh, you've only got, you know, 2,000 subscribers in your YouTube. That's nothing. Like, you know, the perspective is everything, right? Right. Speaking of YouTube, ooh, I made a, uh, a new thumbnail for my game dev oh, did you? videos. <laughs> it's amazing. A- you should check it out at our YouTube channel youtube.com slash lost decade games i'll put a, a link to that yes in the show notes it's actually uh this great horse blair uh artistry that you did <laughs> i gotta do a new one that one's really old at this point yeah it is it looks pretty cool though oh thanks it's good enough for my purposes i'll make a better one good enough for government work <laughs> oh i have heard that one hey oh there you go yeah my dad a, just said a lot a regular expression i am familiar with oh that's amazing <laughs> Um, hey, if you're going to be at uh, E3 next week, I'm going to be there. So uh, reach out on uh, Twitter or email or something if you want to meet up, have a chat. I don't want to talk to you. I know you don't. Okay, I'm surprised good. you're not going to E3. It's not that far from you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, really, it's not that surprising. Yeah, yeah, it's not that surprising. I don't know. I have a, a love-hate relationship with conferences. Yeah, they're good, but uh, they're also like a huge time vampire they are and i kind of feel like if we're not exhibiting i don't want to go and like to get there my wife and i are gonna have to like drive and then take a bus and blah blah oh, wow. and yeah like yeah and i was like it's in la shouldn't that be easy? i yeah i mean you live in la and you're already like ah this is gonna be a pain in the butt like i don't want to <laughs> go anywhere near la with <laughs> you know yeah do you want to drive from where you are where there's a lot of traffic to somewhere where there's even more traffic like, yes please oh, not so much <laughs> not so much um it'll be interesting also uh, in september to uh, hit up twitchcon yeah i actually uh, would i'm sort of interested in, in going to that but um that'd be even more of a hike for you yeah well i, I don't hate the bay area as much as i hate la <laughs> although yeah. I, I kind of started to before i left because it is also super trafficy and busy and just annoying and it's just getting uh, worse and worse every day man it is it's <laughs> becoming like the new new york yeah pretty much. you know with the the price of uh of living there and the amount of people just the density of people it's getting crazy i'm pretty sure that san francisco is more expensive uh median rent wise than than manhattan yeah i would no. think so again you know i could be talking out of my tiger hat but you certainly are. <laughs> yes. Anyways, uh, I think that's all we have for this week. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us on the forums at forum.lostdecadegames.com and uh, follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash lostdecadegames. Kind of a ramble cast as we are preparing to talk more about our next project. We're going to have a, a pretty big announcement coming up in the next couple of weeks or months, just as soon as we can. And, uh, you know, Lost Cast listeners will, of course, uh, be the first to know when that's coming up. Uh, but in the meantime, we're just talking about making progress and uh, whatever kind of random topics come up. Uh, if you have stuff that you'd like to hear about, be sure to let us know uh, via email or the ways in which Jeff just told you about. And uh, last but not least, we're going to play you out with a song by Joshua Morris called Our Love. And this is a remix by Knots. Ship it.
and you know that uh, you could still get beaten up, but it would be such a, you know, punching just a bag of goo. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that is what the part that hurts of getting hit, right? Is the collision between the hard thing and your, your, your bones, your structure. Right. But like, you still have like all of your nerve endings, you know, you still feel pain probably 